God and take the dead and breathe life into them, as we have seen here and as we will see in Luke's glorious gospel in just a moment. As we prepare our hearts and, and minds to receive the word of the Lord, let me ask you just to join me one more time in going to the Lord and asking for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we, uh, with heads and hearts bowed, acknowledge our great need for you now. We are so dependent upon your Spirit's power to see what your truth is and to grow up into it. And so, God, we simply ask this morning for your help, for your grace to behold your truth, God. Would you, would you guard us from any error? Lord, would you guide us in the light of your truth? Would you glorify Jesus, your Son, through your Word? May your people, equipped by your truth, grow in confidence and courage. And may we be a beacon of light here in Washington, Pennsylvania, and throughout the world, changed by Christ. We know, Lord, that you have brought us indeed from death to life, and so help us now to live as resurrected souls here now on this side of the sun and, and for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, today we'll be picking up the Gospel of Luke. We've been combing through Luke's glorious Gospel together with two remarkable accounts. We'll be seeing Jesus healing remotely, and then Jesus aborting a funeral. So let's, uh, let's brace ourselves as we prepare to behold the omnipotent power of our King. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7 in your Bibles. Luke's Gospel, the 7th chapter, will begin reading in verse 1. If you're using our church Bibles in the seat back in front of you, that's on page 811. And if you don't have a Bible that you trust and can rely on God's Word to us, then and that's our gift to you. Take it, read it, believe it. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Let's read God's Word again together. After he, speaking of Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, 
and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Wow. Well, how about that? Anyone here work remotely or would like to work remotely? I'm just sort of curious. Well, Jesus gives this whole remote work phenomenon a whole new meaning here in our passage today. We're talking no internet, no cloud, no conference calls or Zoom meetings. I mean, just stop for a moment and consider this kind of power. No tools, no technology, listen, no medicine even. And Jesus, who's not even physically present with this man who's sick, takes this guy from knocking on death's door to suddenly healed in a moment. As if that weren't enough, in the very next account, Jesus goes about canceling a funeral. Not for uh, inclement weather or any other unforeseen schedule conflicts. No, no, no. At Jesus' command, the dead guy simply stops being dead. (laughs) So before we drill down and, and start working our way through these texts more carefully together, I just want to pause to make sure that we don't miss the blindingly obvious point from the very beginning. And that point is that there is nothing that Jesus cannot do. All authority. We're fond of quoting these words from Jesus. He tells us, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Every ounce, every fiber of power in this world and the next is under the jurisdiction of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. It all belongs to Him. Like how Abraham Kuyper famously put it, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all His. And all things will one day bow before Him, serving Him, pointing to His honor and His glory, and His fame. Jesus is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. And He tells us in Revelation 1.18, He holds the keys of death and Hades. They belong to Him. So, we simply want to start here this Lord's Day morning by 
laying all our cards on the table. If you're new here to Friendship Community Church, welcome to FCC. We're so glad you've joined us, and we want you to know Jesus is Lord. He is the prophet, the true great prophet. He is our great high priest, and He is our eternally reigning King. Let's, uh, let's drill down on these remarkable accounts of His power, His omnipotent, matchless, endless power here, and see what we can gather from them today for our lives in 2023. I think one of the fascinating things about this first account here in chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, verses 1 to 10, and I'd encourage you to have it open. We're making all our points from this book here. Uh, One of the fascinating things about this first account is that we never even meet the guy who gets healed. Did you notice that? We don't know his name. We don't know exactly what was going on. We know it was bad. It was serious. But, but the focus, the attention, isn't really even on him, is it? Instead, we're introduced to his master, who happens to be a centurion, who cares deeply for him, who, who values his servant. The word is doulos. In Greek, it means slave or bondservant. But he values this servant highly. Now, a little background, helpful to understand as we're working our way through the passage together. A centurion was an officer in the Roman military, the Roman army, who had command over a century or over a hundred troops. So, this is a very powerful man. Got it? This is also certainly a very well-compensated man by the Roman Empire. I mean, this guy's got enough money to finance public buildings, right? And apparently... He's heard the report about this Jesus. Jesus has been teaching and healing and casting out demons and and speaking with the very authority of God Most High. This centurion has heard and he believes that Jesus has the power to restore his slave to health. So what's he do? Well, he sends messengers. But the who of his sending is actually quite curious. Who's he send? Well, he sends Jewish leaders, elders of the Jews, to make his appeal to Jesus. He himself being a Gentile, probably, we don't know for sure, the text doesn't spell it out, but probably because Jews and Gentiles at, at this time did not associate with one another, certainly did not enter one another's homes. You've got to understand that what's unfolding here is a very uncommon scene. This centurion, unlike most Roman soldiers, is well regarded, well loved and esteemed by the Jews. Look at verse 5 with me. He loved their nation. The Jews tell Jesus. He loves, he loves us. He loves the, the children of Abraham. And, and He's even built our synagogue. And this guy's invested, right? Kind of reminds us of another centurion we read about later in Scripture with a heart ripe to hear and receive from Jesus. You'll remember if you've read through the book of Acts lately that God sends the Apostle Peter to the house of a guy named Cornelius. 
And he's breaking all kinds of categories with Cornelius and with Peter. He gives Peter a vision where he, he lets down a sheet from heaven filled with all kinds of animals and says, eat, Peter. Now, I'm going to resist the urge to, to start teaching through Acts chapter 10, but I want you to see here, there's a lot of similarities between the centurion with a heart for Christ here in Luke 7, and the centurion in Acts 10, Cornelius, we read, was also a Roman centurion. Just not sure what you'd do with that. It's kind of a fun fact, though, right? All right, back to the text here, Luke 7. Look at verse 4 with me, if you will. I want you to see that these Jewish elders were earnest as they approached Jesus on the centurion's behalf. They earnestly pleaded, verse 4, earnestly pleaded with Jesus. And... uh what was their pitch? You notice? What do they say to try to convince Jesus to come? Well, end of verse 4, verse, verse 5, they, they say to Jesus, hey, he's worthy. This centurion is worthy, note that word, to have you do this for him, Jesus. What I find striking, jarringly so, is the juxtaposition, however, between the Jewish leader's description of this centurion, he's worthy, and this man's own assessment of himself. Again, the Jewish leaders, he deserves it, he's worthy, he loves our nation, he's, he's even built our synagogue. This man's in it, Jesus. But look at what the centurion says. The very next verse, in verse 6, as he's describing himself through proxy to Jesus, he says, I am not worthy. Now, isn't that curious? This man sends another group, this time not Jewish leaders, this time his friends to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to have you under my roof. In fact, verse 7, I'm not even worthy to have you in my presence. That's why I didn't presume to come to you myself. The Jewish leader says, say, worthy. The centurion says, uh-uh, not worthy. So what's going on here in this passage? Well, I think uh, Philip Riken, writing for the Reformed Expository Commentary, again, I, I find that as a very helpful source if you're working through the, the Gospel of Luke. Great commentary uh, to, to, uh, to help uh, you in your understanding of God's Word. Philip Riken writes this about these dueling senses of worthiness. Riken says, Here we see the absolute contrast between the apparent worthiness and the actual unworthiness of a man who seems to lead a good life. Everyone else thought the centurion deserved whatever, whatever help he needed. He was a good man. He cared for his servants. He gave a lot of money to the local congregation. Surely, such a man was entitled to some kind of special treatment. But by the grace of God, the centurion saw himself as he really was. He knew that he was not worthy at all. Not compared to Jesus. He was not even worthy to be under the same roof. Friends, I think this is just simply human nature. Not just here and in our text and in Palestine in the first century, but today. 
in America in, in 2023, we have this tendency to want to see or to pronounce someone as worthy, as good, if they compare favorably with the rest of the people around them, right? That's what we do. We norm reference one another. We get our sense of worthiness by looking around and saying, man, I know he's not perfect. I mean, who is? But compared to everybody else, look look what he's done. This is a worthy man. This is a worthy woman. A good man. A, A good woman. The problem with that thinking is that's not the measuring stick that God uses for worthiness, is it? The point is, when you stand before Jesus, all our worthiness melts away. What did we just sing a moment ago? No list of things that I've done. Nothing that I've done well. No amount of good deeds that I've heaped up can deem me worthy in the eyes of a holy and perfect God. Scripture says it this way in Isaiah 64, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. Notice, Isaiah did not say all of our sins are like filthy rags before the Lord. We know that, that all our sin stinks to the high heavens. But that's not what Isaiah said. He said, you on your best day, all the best things that you can give and do before the Lord, before His righteousness, before His perfection, before His holiness, just like filthy rags. Romans 3.10, if you want a New Testament verse, there is none righteous. No, not one. So, what do we do about this. What do we do about this uh, dueling conception in our lives today and, and here in the text of who's worthy? Who's worthy before Jesus? Well, here's a simple question by way of application that you can ask yourself as we're trying to live out this text. Ask yourself, do I consider myself worthy of the Lord and His blessings? Or do I, like the centurion, see myself as truly unworthy of God's grace. Speak plainly. I think there's some of us, if you would just look at the wake of our lives and the pride that emanates from them, it's almost as if some of us think that God, man, He's pretty lucky to have me on His team. We... We laugh because that's a preposterous idea. But perhaps at a point in your life, I know at a point in my life, I considered myself a pretty good guy. Why? Well, because compared to everybody else around me, just like the Jews were saying, compared to everybody else, look at all that I'd done or not done. Surely, God would love me see me as worthy. After all, I believe in Him and I go to church. And... Friends, it's not what it's about. That's not the Gospel. 
the gospel is, and the centurion knows it, at least the first part of it, you are unworthy. Your righteous deeds before a holy and perfect God are like filthy rags. And the only prayer you have of standing before Almighty God is His grace, is His mercy. God's not lucky to have you on His team. We are exceedingly, overwhelmingly blessed that He should love His enemies like you and me. One additional point before we move on, and, and, it, and it's not directly here in the text, but I, I really do think this is an important thing to stop and say, because uh, I don't know about you, but uh, when I read a text like this, a passage like this, questions can start rolling through my brain about what if and why not. So, think about it this way. Many of us could struggle after reading a text like this because we know that if Jesus would just say the word, He could heal. He could fix that problem. He could provide that need. He could mend that relationship. If Jesus has the kind of power that He clearly does to heal this centurion servant, if all He has to do is just save the word, word, say the word, yeah, that's it. And crying out loud, why doesn't He in my life? Friend, the same principle I think applies here. Ask yourself the same question about worthiness. Are you worthy for Jesus to fix your problem? Just because He can, does it mean that He should? Perhaps, seated on the throne of the heavens, with all eternity past, all present, all things future in mind, perhaps the God of heaven and earth has a slightly different vantage point on what is best than you do, or than I do. We struggle, don't we? I struggle. God, why don't you heal him? And maybe we could even begin to think, he's, he's worthy of you doing this, Lord. Just say the word, that's all you got to do. Just a gentle reminder before we continue. Jesus doesn't owe you squat. He has already given you heaven. He's given you eternity. If you should live a Job-like existence for the rest of your days, you would be more than graciously compensated for what you deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. Jesus doesn't owe you healing. Jesus doesn't owe you prosperity. Jesus doesn't owe you blessing. Oh, isn't He kind to give it? And He does, doesn't He? Lavishes people so often with good things. But let's guard ourselves from spiritual pride or presumption in assuming that just because He can say the word, He should. 
simple example before we go on. I think I've got it up there. If you want to spend some time meditating on this and working this out a little bit more fully this week, 2 Corinthians 12, we read about how Paul, many of you know this passage well, Paul, the apostle, is given a thorn in his flesh. You know who gave it to him? God. A messenger of Satan, he says, to torment me. And he pleads with the Lord again and again, three times. Perfect please. Complete please, Lord. Take it away. Take it away. Take it away. What's God say? No. His answer is, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. Because my power is not like human power. It's not like your power. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, so let me boast in my, in my thorn. So let me boast in my weakness. So that Christ would all the more get the glory through this earthen vessel, through this jar of clay that is my life. Friend, if the Apostle Paul, with his spiritual cape flapping in the breeze who wrote virtually half the New Testament and planted churches throughout the known world, who, who raised people from the dead by God's power, whose handkerchief could touch people and heal them. If the Apostle Paul would get a no from God, might he sometimes give a gracious, wise, righteous no to you or to me? Spent a little bit of time this weekend thanking God for the life and the ministry of Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City who passed away recently. There are many years of faithful service, gospel service. And he understood this with stage four pancreatic cancer. He said, I, I pray at least twice a day to God. Take it away, God. I know you can take it away. But even if you don't, you're good. Tim Keller is now in glory. And he wouldn't come back if he could. Standing before his Savior. God doesn't owe you healing. He's good to give it. We should ask Him for it. He's a perfect Father. But don't presume upon His grace. That's one way to apply this text, I think, to our lives. Let's, let's keep working. We've got to ask ourselves the question, verse 7, what does this centurion do? This man who's keenly aware of his unworthiness. What's he do? Well, he says, first of all, you know, Jesus... I understand authority. As an officer in the Roman Empire, I am under authority. The, the authority of those over me in the military, ultimately under the authority of Caesar. And I have great authority. This soldier says, hey listen, I tell these guys go and they, they go. I say jump, they ask how high. The implication is clear, isn't it? The centurion believes that Jesus has so much authority that like Him, Jesus can merely speak the Word. Just say the Word. 
Just command it, Jesus, and the natural order is bound to obey him. This is remarkable faith. Would you agree? And Jesus actually says as much. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard this, what did he do? My translation says, he marveled. That's beautiful. He marveled. That word can also be rendered. That's the Greek word into, into contemporary English today. He marveled. Jesus was amazed. Jesus was astonished. Just a fun little fact. You know how many times in Scripture we hear this? How many times Jesus is amazed like this? Using this word, he marvels, he's amazed twice. Once here at the faith of the centurion, and the other time, we read about it a few weeks back, was when he was in his hometown of Nazareth, and his own received him not. He marveled at their unbelief. Mark 6.6 6. So, Jesus is amazed Jesus is affirming of this man's faith. And, and more than that, he even uses this man's faith to make a teaching moment for all around him. Again, look at verse 9 with me, please. What's he do? After he hears the account of this man's faith, this centurion's faith, just say the word, Jesus. Jesus turns to the crowd, turning to the crowd that followed him, making this a teaching moment for everybody following him. Jesus says, even among the covenant people of God, even among Israel, I've not found faith like this. I guess the question is, what makes this faith so commendable? Why is Jesus amazed at this man's faith? Well, I, I don't know that I know all of the reasons, but there's certainly two very glaring reasons in the text. I've got them for you right here. Again, if you're a note taker, you can write these down. Two things, I think at least two things if we distill this faith simply. First, the centurion had a high view of Christ. Did he not? He believed that his power his authority was supreme. He didn't even need to be present. All, all you needed to do, Jesus, is say the word. And he knew that heaven and earth would move to do Jesus' bidding. It starts with commendable faith. starts with a high view of Christ and His power and His authority. But if you flip the coin over, he also had a humble view. A humble view of whom? Well, of himself. I've been talking about that, so I won't belabor the point anymore, of his own personal unworthiness. Christ, you're great, and I am nothing. These are the ingredients of the faith that Jesus commends. Last thing, before we move to the even bigger miracle, did you notice that as amazing as this healing is, here in verses 1 to 10, the emphasis of the account is not even on the healing. You catch that? We don't even, we don't even get Je what Jesus said, or if he said anything. The man says, Jesus, just say the word. And Jesus said, Wow, look at this faith. 
And then the next thing we hear is that the servants return home. Remember, they were close to him, close to the house. And by the time the servant, they get back to the house, they find the servant miraculously well. But the details of the text actually aren't pointing to the healing itself, are they? What do they point to? Well, they point to the, the faith that preceded the healing. Friends, may we learn, may we grow as we look at this example that Jesus commends of faithfulness in this pagan Gentile centurion. May we here at Friendship Community Church be people with a high view of Christ and His power. Just say the word, Jesus. All power, all authority belongs to You. And a humble view of ourselves. All right. I don't know about you, but I'm still like trying to catch my breath from verses 1 to 10. And then <laughs> Dr. Luke just takes it up another notch, doesn't he? He goes on, beginning in verse 11, to show how Jesus can reverse the irreversible. You know, a wise man once said, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. You guys like that movie way too much. Because mostly dead is slightly alive. But with all dead, the only thing you can do with all dead is just go through his clothes and look for a spare change. Alright, that's the last time I quote Princess Bride. I mean, right? This passage in verses 1-10 to shows Jesus bringing back someone from the brink. But what we're about to see is Jesus bringing back someone who's gone over the brink. He's gone, man. But here, what we see is that the author of life who holds the keys to death and Hades, for him this is a very light thing. I like how one biblical commentator put it as he was describing the funeral procession going through this little town of Nain and, and, and Galilee. He says, the way of life, referring to Jesus, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, the way of life, Jesus, meets the way of death in this funeral procession. And when life collides with death, guess who wins? Jesus. Every time. Let's not skip over the human element here in the second miracle because the heartbreak is real. For a widow to have her only son die before she did is the most extreme tragedy imaginable. Not only is there the obvious grief, it's just not supposed to go this way, is it? Some of you here have felt that Incomparable loss. Not only is there the obvious grief of a mother grieving her child, her son, but she's a widow. And she's got no more sons to take care of her. In this society, it would mean that typically the widowed, childless mother would now be reduced to a life of poverty and begging for subsistence. 
Jesus sees this grief unfolding in real time. Two crowds collide. There's quite a crowd following Jesus. If you look back in your Bibles, wouldn't you be following Jesus after he he spoke the word and, and healed that servant? And there's quite a crowd that meets him at the gates of the city of Nain for this funeral procession. People everywhere. And Jesus, seeing the grief of this bereaved mother, has, verse 13, compassion on her. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in compassion, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how he's described. Literally, that word in verse 13, compassion means to be deeply moved in the inner bowels, in your inmost parts. That's how Jesus felt. And what He does is absolutely category-breaking. Verse 14, what's Jesus do when He encounters this funeral procession? Right, that's the word. Well, verse 14, He reaches out and He touches the beer. He touches the casket. At at that time, it would have been an open coffin, essentially like a plank, where the the corpse would just be laying on top of it, wrapped in a burial cloth. He's there. The body is there for everyone to see. In ancient Near East funerals, you typically buried someone the day they died, because in that kind of heat and climate, you know, decomposition would come quickly. The body is being carried on a plank. And Jesus reaches out and touches the coffin. He touches the dead man's funeral beer. And notice what happens as a result. The pallbearers, those carrying the beer, immediately stop. Just, just think about this for a moment. Been to a funeral? Can you imagine? Even today, if you were to presume as the coffin was, was moving out to the hearse to run up, to, to, to touch that thing, there's a collective gasp, I'm sure, coming from everybody. The entire funeral profession screeches to a halt. This was just not something that you did. Not today, certainly not then, especially when you consider that to touch a dead body or a coffin back then had very real consequences. And I'm not going to belabor uh, working through the book of Numbers, but, but if you want to look up the ritual impurity that would come to a person for touching the dead, you can go to Numbers 5 or to Numbers 19. You had to jump through a lot of hoops to get ritually clean after touching a dead body. No one would do it except for those that needed to, the, the closest family to that to the deceased. But listen now, just as Jesus, we read about a few chapters ago, had touched the leper, and His superior cleanness overrode the leper's uncleanness. <laughs> Does that happen? Jesus' purity trumps the leper's germs. It's not the way it works. 
but it is with Jesus. In like manner, Jesus' superior life overrides the death of the widow's son. How did he do it? How did he do it? Well, all he did was speak. And it's sort of fun to see who he was speaking to. Did you see? Did you notice here in the text? Who's he addressing in, in this funeral profession? Procession. That's a hard one for me. Guys, he's speaking to the dead guy. Right? He says, <laughs> he says to the dead guy, young man, he's dead. Cold as a stone. I say to you, arise. And the young man proceeds to do two things that dead people do not typically do. Sit up and speak. Guys, this is wild, right? I mean, this is utterly amazing. Because we know death is like the ultimate showstopper. It's the one thing we can't turn around. Death and taxes. Jesus deals with both in the Gospels. And yet here's Jesus, who, I'm just going to remind you, holds the keys of death and Hades, commanding death to retreat, and it is quick to oblige. The result? They're freaked out. Right? All the people are seized with fear. We've seen this word before. The word is phobos. It's where we get the the word in English phobia from. Filled with fear. A reverent, holy fear of God's power. And they praised God as a result. And I want you to see now that they come to two conclusions watching Jesus, God the Son, raise the dead to life. Two conclusions. Look at verse 16. Both of these conclusions are embedded in this one beautiful verse. They say about Jesus first, a great prophet has arisen among us. No kidding. Right? We'll get to that. And then they say, secondly, and God has visited His people. Don't skip over that. Those are their two conclusions after watching the dead race to life. Let's start with the great prophet one. A great prophet. In Greek, that's prophetes mega. Kind of cool, right? Mega prophet. Uh, yes, that would be correct. Again, Jesus is the, the great prophet. The one Moses foretold who would come after him in Deuteronomy 19. We won't go there now, but... Undoubtedly, the people around Jesus are saying this about him, that he's a great prophet, because they're thinking of the other great prophets, namely Elijah and Elisha, who raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. If you're curious, there are only three accounts prior to this, in all of biblical redemptive history, of the dead being raised to life. I listed them here for you if you want to go back and look. It's kind of fun to read the stories. Sam read us through the first one uh, right right before our message. 1 Kings 17, 17-24. That's Elijah raising 
the widow's son. Then we get 2 Kings 4, 20-27. Elisha raising the, the son of the Shunammite woman. And then this last one's just wild. It's one verse, by the way. We just get a little, a little snippet. All right, I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> this is, I love this. A guy dies, and his buddies are bringing him down to bury him, and they see a group of a raiding party coming, coming over the hill. And, and so what do they do? They throw their buddy's dead body in a tomb and beat it. And his dead body touches the bones of Elisha buried there and comes to life. Isn't that wild? Only three examples in all the Old Testament. All of them referring to the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So of course they're going to say, wow, we got a great prophet here, don't we? We should note though, that this most amazing of miracles was not something Jesus had to work hard to conjure up. What did He do? He just spoke. He just commanded. And if you take the time to work back through these passages, Elisha and, and Elijah, man, they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're like laying down on bodies and putting staffs on people and breathing in. It takes like three times. Ain't no thing for Jesus. He just speaks. I like how one biblical commentator, Bach, puts it. He said, great power, talking about Jesus raising the widow's son to life, great power is displayed with great ease here in this passage. All right, last thing they say about Jesus, God has visited his people. Now that is true and more poignant than I think any of them knew when they came to that conclusion. God, Emmanuel, God made flesh, had come to visit and walk among and redeem His people. Remember way back at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, when John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, finally has his tongue loosed And he prophesies in song praising God about the Messiah to come. Luke 1, 68. What's Zechariah prophesy over the coming, the soon coming Messiah? Well, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has... He's come. He's visited and redeemed His people. Aren't you glad? That God has come to walk among us and to purchase our redemption. Well, we're about out of time. Let me give you a few simple points of application. What do we do in light of such matchless power? Raising the dead to life. How can we apply this to our lives? Well, well, I want to point us to three things that we can do as it relates to this resurrection theme throughout all of Scripture. I simply want to suggest that you, that I, as followers of Jesus Christ, prioritize resurrection. As, uh, as incongruous as it sounds, sometimes I think that we forget 
how critical resurrection is to our lives as Christians, as followers of Christ. The gospel, friend, is not merely that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Oh, it's absolutely that. You can't get the gospel without Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. He traded His life for our death. But that's, that's not the full gospel. you got to keep going. After He died the death that we deserve, Jesus rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God Most High. He lives. And because He lives, so too shall we. The Gospel is tethered to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Such that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise, go home. This church game you're playing is worthless if Jesus is still in the tomb. But He rose. And that makes all the difference. Friends, talk about resurrection often. Don't forget that we serve, that we pray to a living Lord. Talk about, prioritize resurrection. Here's the next thing we should do. We should anticipate resurrection. When was the last time you thought about this? This is a very big deal. Romans 8.23 says, Our bodies groan inwardly. I mean, are you satisfied? I'm not. Is this world enough for you? All the pain and the brokenness. No, one day, Jesus, the risen Lord, the living one, will return. And He's going to give us glorified bodies. And oh, how we yearn for that day. Talk about resurrection. Anticipate resurrection. And lastly, I just want to suggest that you should order your schedule around the resurrection. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. It's a biblical term, by the way. It's not just stuffy religious language. The Lord's Day. The day that Jesus rose from the grave. That's why we gather today, every week on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. The very day He rose from the dead. And when we do, we're saying, Jesus, because You are alive, we can have life. And now, we get to witness a beautiful picture, a beautiful expression of the dead being raised to life through the sacrament, through the ordinance of baptism. Baptism, friends, images the resurrection. Baptism is a, is a beautiful work that shows how one is dead to sin and alive to Christ. What is baptism? Well, it's almost noon and we, we got someone to baptize, so I'm not going to give you a second sermon. But, but baptism is, in essence, two things. It's obedience and it's identification. Baptism is obedience and it's identification. When, when, when you 
follow Christ in baptism, which is saying first and foremost is Jesus, You are Lord. You are ruler. You are master. And I follow You. You know, after Jesus rose from the grave, it's a pretty big deal. We've been talking about it. Died for our sins. Rose from the grave. He says to His disciples, in what we now call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, these are the marching orders of the church. All authority is Mine. Go into all of the earth with My authority, making disciples of all nations. Why? Well, because if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're lost. Everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. Make disciples, make followers, learners of Me, of all nations. And then right after He said that, Jesus gave us the second thing we ought to do. He said, baptizing them. Who? Baptizing those disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then, take the rest of your life to teach them to obey what I've commanded. That's your job, church. That's what we're here for. Become a disciple. Get baptized. And spend the rest of your life learning to grow and obey the commandments of Christ. That's what we are. That's who we are. Baptism is important because Christ commanded it. And baptism is also important, friend, because what you do when you go under the waters of baptism is you say, I'm with Jesus. I'm identifying with Jesus. Look, we got, we got a tub full of water down here. Hopefully we can get it projected up on the screen. And, and as, in just a moment, you see a beautiful soul plunged down into the waters of baptism, what's symbolized is the death that Jesus purchased on our behalf. And the death that we die to sin as we are in Christ. We're just under the water for a little while, hopefully. Just like Jesus was in the grave, just a little while. It's okay, Amy. I won't hold you there. And then as you're raised up out of those waters, clean, fresh, new, what are you imaging? What are you saying? Well, you're saying, just like Jesus rose from the grave, so too I have been resurrected with Christ. There's nothing magic happening here today. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism make you more loved by God. We do it because we who are followers of Christ identify He's my everything. His death is my death. His life is my life. And we do it because He commanded. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, your whole eternity is staked upon His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. Friend, if you've not been baptized, I want to appeal to you. Obey your Lord. Obey your Lord.